0: Savings, all your emotions, so he can be Christ. His name is the deceiver. The pastors don't think these things are going out of their interrogation. I believe that the devil does exist. Be a disciple
1: and
2: make disciples, and you don't do that by being a pastor
1: spectator.
3: Confronting the devil with the overwhelming, almighty, omnipotent power of the Lord Jesus Christ. His power is absolute, he cannot be stopped. Welcome to Confronting the Devil, Fearless Dialogue. Here's your host, Kevin Collier.
4: Thank you for joining us. Guests for this program include Phil Cook, adjunct professor at King's University in Los Angeles, internationally known Christian speaker and writer, and owner of Cook Pictures. Mr. Cook ministers around the world, and we are blessed to have him here. Also, Jeff Cook, no relation, but my brother in Christ, a warrior for the kingdom, and a dear friend for nearly 40 years. We will discuss something we both witnessed in the late 1970s, and it's the first time we've ever told this story in a public forum. But before that, my lovely wife Kristen is with me, and she'll lead us off in prayer.
3: This is from Jesus' high priestly prayer on the night in which he was betrayed, in John 17. Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was.
4: Kristen, what did Martin Luther have to say about the devil?
3: This is from what Luther says in Anthology by Concordia Publishing House. At all hours the devil is seeking to kill us all. After you have been baptized, he will not let you have any rest. If he could kill you in your mother's body, he would do it. He's not satisfied to let us have one kernel of grain on the field one fish or piece of bread, or anything good. Far less does he spare us who are exposing his shame, who rebuke him to his face, and preach what we should, God's grace and the works of the devil. He would now rather break my neck in a moment than let me stand here and preach and storm his kingdom.
4: Thank you, Kristen. Phil Cook needs little introduction. He's been a major mover and shaker for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. As owner of Cook Pictures, he's changing the face of Christianity in Hollywood today. Phil, welcome to the program. Happy to do it. Phil, you and your wife Kathleen are very busy people. You minister around the world. Where are you two headed next and what do you hope to accomplish?
2: The UK. We're going to spend an entire month in the United Kingdom. Kathleen is speaking at a middle east women's conference the first week that she's there and i'm speaking in the event the last week and we decided do we want to go back or forth or do we want to stay and once people heard we were there we started getting a bunch of invitations to speak at other events and so i'll be on a couple television programs speaking to the london school of theology speaking at a leadership conference so it's going to be a busy month but it'll be fun staying an entire month in the uk i'm looking forward to it
4: concerning christian influence in the entertainment industry what was the environment like when you started to cook pictures twenty years ago, and what is it like today? It's
2: different, quite different. Back in those days, there were Christians here, but we didn't—we weren't very connected. Not many people uh, really knew there were other Christians that worked in the industry, and there was really not a way to get connected. Larry Poland from Master Media International was probably the first real pioneer in that area, where he started bringing together Christians. Uh, working together in the industry and ministering to them. And now there's quite a number of Christian organizations and events. So uh, the people have come out of the word work in a big way, and uh, it's a much better environment and much more interesting place to work, actually.
4: Phil, can you explain how the power of prayer is changing the entertainment industry?
2: Well, there's no question that it does. Uh, Karen Covell and the Hollywood Prayer Network Mm -hmm. are on the real front edge of that, where they're actually connecting people across the U.S., Christians across the U.S., connecting them with with entertainment professionals to be prayer partners for them. So we've got this army of people now across the country who are praying for people in Hollywood specifically. My daughter's an actress and she has a, a lady in the Midwest that they call once a week and they pray with each other. And so it's having a huge impact. I don't view Hollywood as the enemy. I try to encourage people to view Hollywood as a mission field. And when you do that, it kind of changes your attitude toward what's going on out there and encourages people to really pray for God to make a difference.
4: Phil, can you explain the Influence Lab, and is it similar to James Duke's Act One organization?
2: Sure. We all know each other very well, and we work together, but the Influence Lab is a little different from any other organization that's out here. The Influence Lab is largely designed to help change the perception of the culture toward Christianity. And so you see in many, many special interest groups, whether it's the gay community or whether it's feminists or whether it's uh, environmentalists or different political groups, they have an advocacy organization that's out getting stories in the media, that's help telling their story on a national scale, national platform. Christians really don't. Uh, There's some PR firms who are driven by Christians, but they're not concerned. They're more concerned with the individual organizations, not with a greater cause. And we wanted to launch the Influence Lab to really try to help change the story in people's minds about what Christians are, what the church is, and its impact in society today. Because I just think it's so incredibly important. It's amazing in my lifetime how we've moved from a culture that was largely, you know, Christianized. We've not ever been a Christian country per se, Mm -hmm. but most people advocated for Christian causes. They believed that prayer in schools was a good idea. They thought abortion was wrong. They thought marriage was between a man and a woman. And in my lifetime, those and many other issues have completely changed. And so I I saw a quote the other day, someone calling Christians extremist,
3: and uh, (laughs) they're not
2: good for the culture. And we just have to change that thinking out there. And um, that's what we hope to do with the Influence Lab.
4: Are ministries becoming more educated as to how to use social media to effectively spread the gospel?
2: Absolutely. For a long time, people used social media to tell people they were at Starbucks or show them pictures of their lunch. But um, I've certainly been speaking and teaching on it across the country, and other people have as well. And we're seeing that churches, ministries, nonprofit organizations are really seizing social media as an opportunity to share news about what they're doing and the impact they're having with a a significant audience. Uh, I tell people I've got about 31,000 Twitter followers, and I view that kind of as a church. And so I don't want to just send them silly stuff, although we have fun, but I want to feed them and encourage them and help them grow. And so I think if we all took that kind of attitude towards social media, people would be surprised at the impact they can have out there.
4: It seems like your typical local church is in the Stone Age concerning technology and I don't know why they don't reach out to members of their congregation, to advance and to seize that social media advantage, even to promote recruiting students if they have a Christian school. What advice would you have for local tech-deficient churches?
2: Well, it's funny. They don't teach media and seminary. And so it's understandable that pastors come out of seminary and launch churches and really don't have a lot of knowledge about how to connect with the culture, how to use technology, how to market your church in today's marketplace. And so I think all of those things are important. And the truth is, I don't care how small you are. You could start with a free Facebook page. You could start with a free Instagram account or Twitter feed. All those things are just simply free ways to connect with people outside the walls of the church. And if we could use those in a, in a real systematic way, if we could just think about what we're sharing and the messages that we're promoting, it could have a huge impact. I, I know churches that are very, very small, and yet they've generated a huge social media following. And so it's very interesting how technology can be leveraged to try to reach more people with the good news about Jesus.
4: They can't use the excuse that there's no capital funding to support this, because as you know, most social media sources are free.
2: That's right. In fact, if you have questions about it, just go ask a junior high kid. I mean, most junior high kids or high school kids know all about it, so it's not like you need a professional IT person uh, or a staff member to help navigate this through. Most kids can help. The question becomes, and I've got my book, Unique, Telling Your Story in the Age of Brands and Social Mm -hmm. Media. There are other books for churches designed around social media, so there are resources available that can really help pastors understand how to use social media effectively and their website effectively to make an impact in their local
4: community. Whether perception or reality, it appears that the devil has mastered cyberspace communication regarding his influence. There's cyber hacking, thievery, fraud, pornography, stalking, you name it. It's as if the internet has become the ultimate gateway of the devil. What do ministries need to do technologically to counter this? And what are the areas that you think need the most restoration?
2: I'd certainly like to see churches teaching on it more. You know, the fact is, it seems weird. We should be teaching on the Bible and Scripture, and yet, Technology has taken over so much of our lives, and people really don't have a biblical context for how I should use my iPhone, how I should use my computer or my social media. And it starts with families. Uh, I had very strict rules with my two daughters. Our daughters growing up about Mm -hmm. having no computers in their room, uh, keeping the computers in a public place so everybody could see what you're doing on it. Uh, We restricted their access to iPhones for a while. And um, all those things are incredibly, incredibly important. And you're exactly right. Uh, there's some bad, bad stuff going on online. The Barna Research Group just released a remarkable study about the impact of porn in the digital age today. And it's what's shocking is how how
1: many millennials, how many young people are
2: interested in porn and how few of them think it's a problem. And so it's it's a growing issue. And I think we start at the family level just explaining to our kids why it's important, why we need to be careful. And then I'd like to see that reinforced at the church level. I'd love small groups to talk about it. How many hours a day are you on your phone? I read a statistic the other day that middle school kids check their social media feeds up to 100 times a day. And most people look at their check their iPhones about 70 to 80 times a day. So in that world, we need to just understand limitations, understand control, understand discernment. And I think there's no better place than the church for that to be learned.
4: Kristen and I don't even own a cell phone. We have a landline. I don't want to be one of those zombies walking around checking a portable communications device all day and I think of how the enemy is using social media too. A burglar for example can use it to find out who's on vacation so they can rob your home. You can pretty much see all of your belongings in your house because you posted a thousand pictures of it on Facebook and children are posting countless pictures of themselves and their bedrooms, or belongings and posting intimate details of who they are and where they go. It's just inviting all kinds of potential trouble if not danger.
2: Yeah, you know, people use things for evil in a lot of different ways, and they use a lot of things for evil. And so I'm not one that advocates walking away from it or not getting involved in the digital world. I think it's around us, and it's something that we should put a stake in and use for good. And so I, I think that the key is how do we teach people to use it effectively? How do we caution young people about how its, about its use? Because the truth is it's not going away. It's like uh, the, if they don't use it at your house, they'll go use it at their friend's house. So I would rather my daughters be uh, schooled in how to understand it, how to deal with it, and how to use it effectively because they're definitely going to engage it at some point in their life.
4: Christian radio and TV programs are professing the end times narrative, and hey, I get it, okay? But Phil, when you and your wife minister in third world countries to hungry, poverty stricken people, are those individuals concerned about negative interest rates, a cashless society? Do they all have bunkers to run to, and are they worried about the power grid going down? Well, I guess not. They don't have to, they don't have any electricity. Jesus didn't have a bug out bag, Phil. He approached trouble, and he didn't run away from it. Can you address all of this?
2: Well, that's a lot to address in one response, but cultural sensitivity matters. I do really believe, in fact, it was Billy Graham that taught it to me. We, We produced some TV specials for Billy Graham many, many years ago, and he was incredibly sensitive about understanding what we say and how we say it when the program is airing in different countries around the world. So we would do different versions because we understood that, you know, big priorities in the U.S. are going to be different priorities in Nigeria or different priorities in India, different priorities in Asia. So we realized early on that cultural sensitivity matters. And I do wish Christian broadcasters understood that more because you're exactly right. I travel all over the world and I've been in plenty of third world countries and I see American Christian broadcasters talking about things that are absolutely ridiculous to the people watching it in many of these countries. So, um, I, I just think it's really, really important. It's kind of um, incredibly insensitive for us to just produce yeah. programs about some of this stuff. And by the way, Blood Moons one of these days, you have to do an episode on that and explain that to me.
1: but yeah, um, really, we
2: just need to be more sensitive. Jesus was remarkably sensitive to the people he was talking to. wherever he was, mm-hmm. he was incredibly sensitive. Knowing the people in that audience. And I think we could do no less. I think it's important that we understand who it is and tailor our message to that particular audience.
4: It seems like many in Christian media are just perpetuating fear.
2: Yeah, many of them do. Many of them do. I mean, the funny thing is, if you've read the last chapter of the book, you know we win. So mm-hmm. there's really not a great cause for fear. I think there's great cause for concern. I think we should be aware of what's going on, whether it's the presidential race or whether it's financial issues or whatever. But No, I think when we start talking fear, we start taking our eyes off our ultimate goal.
4: It's a distraction. Isn't that what the devil wants?
2: Well, we have plenty of distractions in our culture. (laughs) Plenty of distractions in our culture. We talked about iPhones and the digital world just a few minutes ago. That's a big enough distraction. In fact, really clutter, the disrupted culture we live in, I think is the biggest challenge Christians face today. The biggest challenge, because research study after study after study shows that we're being bombarded with about 5,000 media messages every single day so in that world it's not necessarily the best message that cuts through it's the message that knows how to get people's attention and uh, actually make an impact
4: I was speaking with James Duke the other day and he said he's always concerned when flipping through TV channels on the remote when his children are in the room because he doesn't know what it'll land on and I suggested that's just the commercials
2: <laughs> that's true that's Absolutely true. Um, it's a very coarse world we live in today, certainly not the one I grew up in, that's for sure.
4: Overseas, you've been shot at, lived through a couple of coup attempts, and almost were tossed in an African jail. That's spiritual warfare most Americans will never experience. What have you learned from all of this, and how has God in your faith helped you through it?
2: Well, it's incredibly important. And I think when you get into those situations, you suddenly get a picture of what millions and millions of other people are living through every single day. I mean, there's, trust me, there's nothing that I've lived through that's even close to what's happening to Christians in the Middle East these days. I, I think that. Those are just great reminders of the fact that we have it pretty well here in the U.S., and there are millions and millions of people suffering horribly, horribly around the world. And so I think, if anything, the thing it's taught me the most is to be much more sensitive to other people, uh, to care about what people are going through, and try to help get the gospel to them. It's so important. So incredibly important, and certainly there are Christians that are going through horrific persecution right now, Mm -hmm. and uh, meantime, we we complain, Christians in America get upset because they won't let us say a prayer at the beginning of a high school football game, (laughs) or we get upset because they criticize us on Saturday Night Live. You know, certainly all those things sting, and all those things are frustrating, particularly if you've lived your life in a country that was largely Christian. But the truth is, it's nothing compared to what many, many people around the world. So maybe it's about perspective, just giving us a better idea. God's giving us a better idea of what it's really like in most of the world.
4: Phil, is political correctness the devil's best friend?
2: Political correctness is one of the great evils of our time. There's absolutely no question in my mind. It's one of the great absolute evils of our time. By not calling things the way they are, not refusing to to look at the truth, refusing to be honest about things, I think it's absolutely destroying the fabric of the country. I could not be more uh, against the concept of being politically correct. We live in a culture today where people are trying so hard to be nice they refuse to tell the truth. They refuse to deal with reality. And it's undermining the very freedoms that uh, this country is built on. And so I, I have nothing good to say about political correctness any time or any place.
4: There was a Christian entertainment program on recently with secular songs.
2: A musical event, yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: In the dialogue when Jesus spoke, he said, I tell you, I tell you. Well, in the Bible, he says, I tell you the truth. Where is the gospel truth in these types of programs?
2: Well, I don't know about the script. I was in and out of it two or three times, but Uh um, look, I'm all about trying to get the story out there, and if they want to try to do it in a musical, Broadway musical-style event live that brought thousands of people to see it in New Orleans, I'm at least for giving it a shot, because I think God's word doesn't return void. I don't know, I would fall on the side of probably, let's give it a shot and see if God could use that in some
4: way. In other words, we should accommodate this. If it moves the Christian bar forward a little, it's better than nothing.
2: I think so. I think so. It's hard to argue
4: with that. Christian entertainment programming for children seems to totally lack creativity, not to mention faith-based entertainment programming for adults. You've been a big advocate of creativity. How does creativity change the perception and face of Christianity?
2: Well, it's interesting. God chose to introduce himself to us in the very first verse of the Bible as a creator and we are made in his image. And I think we spend too much of our time ripping other people off rather than being truly creative and following in his footsteps. I think speaking from working and living in Hollywood, creativity is the currency of this culture. And uh, the creative people are paid the most. They're the most valued. They're the most cherished. And I think uh, if we're going to impact the culture, I mean, look how much creativity means to nike or starbucks or apple or microsoft you know go into a verizon store and it's wildly creative it's design driven by the way young people today are the most design driven generation probably in the history of the world and so i think if we're going to impact this culture if we're going to reach these young people today we have to think about design we have to think about creativity and we have to raise the bar in the quality of what we do
4: Do you think Christians politely give mediocrity and Christian entertainment a pass regarding creativity?
2: Well, Christian media was started by pastors back in the 30s, 40s, 50s. It wasn't creatives, it wasn't producers, it wasn't directors that launched Christian media in most cases. It was preachers who saw them as TV or radio as platforms or movie theaters as a platform for sharing the gospel. And so they weren't trained in creativity, and they just were trying to be true to getting the story out there. But I think today the tables have turned, and I think today more and more creative people are getting involved, and we have a real opportunity to fix that imbalance. And I think it's up to us to try to bring a real creative twist to telling that story. It doesn't mean we
3: water down anything. It doesn't
2: mean we compromise our theology or our doctrine. It simply means we speak in a language and style the culture understands. Jesus was a master of that, and I think we need to do the
4: same. In one of the articles you wrote on this topic, you quoted Martin Luther's line, it's time to stop making a shoe with a cross on it and just make a better shoe.
2: Yeah, absolutely right. It's not about putting a cross or a scripture verse on everything we do. It's about doing something so well, people want to know more about it, and that opens us up to being able to tell that story. I think that's really the critical key.
4: Phil, you said that instead of whining and complaining, what if we started doing such remarkable things in the culture that the world would be forced to rethink who we are and who the God is we serve? What sort of remarkable things do you propose?
2: Well, it's funny. You know, when we see something in the culture we don't like, up to this point, most Christians, we boycott Hollywood, we boycott the gay community, we boycott the stores that don't say Merry Christmas, uh, or we launch some kind of an online petition drive. But the truth is, if boycotts worked, why don't missionaries do it? You know, why don't missionaries surround a third-world tribe, hold up signs, call them ugly names? Uh, you know, that's going to win them to Christ. No, it's not. And if it doesn't work in a third-world country or with a tribe, it's not going to work in Hollywood or in the gay community or in Washington, D.C. or anyplace else. I just am not a believer that boycotts move the dial. After all, we've had hundreds. The Christian community has boycotted everybody in the last 30 years. And how has that moved the dial one Bit on any issue, it has In fact, during the last big Christian boycott of Disney, Walt Disney Studios, their stock went through the roof. Their profits became record profits. So very often, boycotting just ends up making us look kind of stupid. So I say, instead of boycotts, what if we started doing something that forced the culture to rethink who we are? I, I'm actually writing a book on it. it. Should be out in about a year, mm-hmm. and um, about what are those kind of things we could do? It's it's kind of based on the idea that. Um, The early church in the days of the Roman Empire had no money. They had no influence. How how in the world did they move from being this ragtag group of persecuted nobodies to the dominant religious force in the Western world in a relatively short time? And they did it because they did things that absolutely baffled the Romans. For instance, the Romans didn't care for life. They had no, no regard for human life whatsoever. And if they had a child they didn't want, they would put it out on the city wall to die of exposure. And these Christians, these crazy, crazy Christians would go out at night take in these children and raise them in their, as their own, in their own families. And other Christians would pitch in with money to help do that. And the Romans had no concept of why anybody would do that. And time after time after time, the Romans finally started to literally wear them down because they had to rethink, who are these people and who is this God they serve? And historians today think that's a huge reason that the Roman Empire finally, finally started to give way and eventually crumbled. And so... I think the question is, what can we do today that would have that kind of impact on this culture that would make it rethink who we are? It could be a remarkable
4: thing. I think there is a false perception in America about Christian persecution. Phil, you've witnessed authentic persecution overseas. And here, American Christians react strongly to little things. We've often been labeled with what we are against rather than what we are for. So where should we be on this?
2: Well, I think that's a great point. It's an old saying, but it's a true saying. That after a while, people just—I can give you a great example from Hollywood. A friend of mine was speaking to a studio executive the other day in Hollywood, and he mentioned Christians. And the studio executive, "Oh, those are the guys that are against everything," he said, because the only Christians yeah. he knows are critical Christians. They don't like what he does. They don't like the movies they make. And I thought, now that's not really the impact I want the Christian church to have on a movie studio executive. Sure, there are things we don't like about Hollywood, there are movies we don't care for, there are things we don't watch. But I don't want to just be known as the people who are always complaining about things, because that doesn't win anybody over. I mean, think, when you're trying to pitch a project or an idea or win somebody over to your argument, constantly hammering on them is not going to work. At some point, you have to reach some kind of agreement, you have to build a bridge. So I think you're exactly right. Criticism alone is certainly not going to win the culture. We have to figure out another way to reach across the aisle and embrace them in some capacity, show them the real people, and that our, our ideas work.
4: Well, it's as if you're selling a product and your selling point is simply to undermine your competitor. You still have to have something to sell to attract customers. That is
2: exactly right. It's so true. It's so true. And so... Um, Yep. Yeah, I have nothing to say. You beat me to it. You're right. You're exactly right.
4: Well, Phil, I appreciate you coming on the program.
2: Well, it was fun. I had a great time. Always enjoy it. Thank you so much, Kevin.
4: And post some photos of your journey on social media. We love to keep track of your ministry and would love to see it.
2: we Will do it. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you so much again, Phil. And I ask all to pray for Phil and Kathleen on their journey overseas with their ministry. Jeff Cook, a regular on the program, has been a dear friend for nearly 40 years. I got him on the phone recently to talk about something we both witnessed in the late 1970s. I was at the home of his parents, and we were outdoors in his driveway at night talking about his misfortunes. I asked Jeff to begin by recalling the circumstances for the somber mood. Well, I was unemployed, and
0: I'd been unemployed for a while, and I was just discouraged, didn't seem to have any purpose, totally dark and depressing. We were just uh, walking up and down the driveway, and for some reason, we both looked up,
4: and then uh, we saw the light. It was the face of Jesus glowing in the night sky.
0: I knew what I saw, and I saw the reaction on your face. I knew you saw something.
4: I asked you what you saw. Well, we both stared at each other, and we both said we were seeing the face of Jesus. Yeah, and I said, that's exactly what I saw. We were amazed, but in a way, it was Jesus letting us know that at that moment, he was with us. Yeah, I just knew what it was. Yeah, it wasn't a moment of disbelief. When you confirmed that you saw the same thing, it was odd, because why were we at the end of the driveway?
0: Why did we decide to look up at the sky? It's one of the uh, reasons that it's impossible for me
4: to not believe. It was more intimate than... Some spectacular vision.
0: Right, it was was something just for us,
4: you know. We didn't conjure up a ministry based on this vision or write a book or go on tour.
0: It wasn't something to get a bunch of glory out of or whatever. It was Jesus showing himself to us at a time when we needed some encouragement.
4: We've often talked about it for nearly 40 years, but just accepted it as a special moment right exactly i'll never forget it that's for sure we never told many about this because it was a private moment yeah and most people uh yeah you just saw some information but we both saw it that was the thing what was cool about it is we were surprised at that moment but we knew who and what it was
0: yeah i just knew what it was and then when you confirmed that you saw the same thing yeah, we're just astounded, like, did that just happen? We looked up at just a precise moment.
4: There he was, and then we looked at each other, and just definitely a face. His face, crystal clear. It was like a glow. And we told your mother. Yeah, and she
0: was cheering to know what to say. It was odd, because why were we at the end of the driveway? Why did we decide to look up at the sky? We told each other what we saw, so we knew we saw it, but it was still
4: like, did that just happen? His face, crystal clear. Thanks, Jeff, for talking about this. Yeah, okay. It's a memory we shared, and it's a moment we'll always cherish. Kristen is right beside me, both figuratively and literally. Can you share a closing prayer, Kristen?
3: This is from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth.
4: Thank you, Kristen. I want to thank my guests and the continued interest in this program. And we extend our prayers to them and ask for your prayers as well. And we're excited about the guests on upcoming programs, including Brian Godawa, Pastor Todd Coconato, Evangelist Elvita King, who is the niece of civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King, James Duke, Dr. Alfonso Espinoza, Josh Peck, Bishop Curtis Earthquake Kelly, L.A. Marzuli, and a return visit with Ron File. We appreciate the overwhelming response that the program has received. I can't thank my guests enough. Coming to our next program, Kim Hilton, the founder of One True Church. Here's a preview.
1: The takers are fakers this prosperity message and this comfort message is actually shameful and I understand that there are people that may disagree with and once again may pick and manipulate scripture to justify that position but let me tell you when our Lord Jesus whom we serve and identify with had no place for his own head and when the charge of the Apostles was given by Christ that he told them to go to not even take a suitcase with them to not take money with them not take a change of clothes or change of shoes, for them to trust God for where they will sleep. Oh, and by the way, you're going to be flogged, you're going to be beaten, you're going to be hungry, and you're going to be put in front of the town squares, And but don't worry, I will give you the words to speak. If that's the charge, where is this you need to have all of this money and you need to have all of these belongings to say that you are a blessed person of Christ? And I personally, I just want nothing
4: to do with that. Don't miss it. Kim Hilton here next time on Confronting the Devil. Thank you for joining us. And remember,
3: do not let fear paralyze your faith. This has been Confronting the Devil with your host, Kevin Collier. Visit online at confrontingthedevil.blogspot.com. Thank you.